0: You have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9 and we've been studying through this incredible New Testament, new church, new covenant book, the book of Acts, a an incredible um, story of the beginning of the church, a narrative of the early church. And so this morning, the title for our sermon is Still Going Strong for Jesus. Still Going Strong for Jesus. We're in Acts chapter 9, finishing it up, chapter uh, 9, verses 32 to the end of the chapter, verse 43. Here's what Luke writes. Now, as Peter went here, And there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, "'Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed.' And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord." Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, then calling the saints and widows He presented her alive, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Dear God, we bow our heads before you this morning, thanking you that we are able to read your word this morning, that we wait for you, that we come before you this morning desiring to learn from this text, from the story of Peter, and the healing of this one who was lame, and the raising of the dead. We desire to see your power, we desire to have our lives transformed, we desire to go strong for you, to exalt you in every day, and every moment of our lives. Be glorified through our time together in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Niccolo Paganini, the great Italian violinist, stood before a packed house surrounded by a full orchestra. He played a number of difficult pieces. Then he came to one of his favorites, a violin concerto. Shortly after he was underway, the audience was enthralled with every inflection of his bow. One of the strings on the violin then snapped. Relying on his flawless skill, he improvised and played on the next three strings. Shortly thereafter... A second string broke on his instrument, and he began again to improvise and continued playing the piece. And almost at the end of the magnificent concerto, a third string snapped. Amazingly, he finished the piece on just one last string. The audience stood to its feet and applauded until their hands were numb. They assumed that the concert was over, but Paganini proceeded to play an encore with the full orchestra. He made more music out of that one string than many violinists ever could on four. Paganini took what appeared to be a most difficult situation and turned it into a triumph. And this was also true to some degree in the life of the apostle Peter. No, Peter was not a violinist, but he began his spiritual journey with his spiritual pursuits full of well-intentioned but also self-focused presuppositions. And when Jesus told Peter and the disciples that he must go from Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day, it was Peter who said to Jesus in Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus responded in the next verse, Matthew 16, 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then at the last supper, when Jesus told his disciples what was about to happen after his arrest, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 31 and 32, you will all fall away uh, from me because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then it was Peter who answered him in the next verse. And he said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. To which Jesus replied, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter had at times plunged to the depths of despair. He had broken a few strings, He had been rebuked by Jesus. He had denied three times that Christ, that he even knew the Christ. And he was also nowhere to be found at the crucifixion. Peter was down, but he was not out. He wavered in the storm, but he was not uprooted. He struggled, but he did not apostatize. Peter may have only had one string left, but when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, he affirmed Peter as one of his own. Peter, uh, Jesus wanted Peter to feed his sheep and feed them, he did. At Pentecost, it was Peter who boldly preached the name of Christ. It was Peter who announced the arrival and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It was Peter who healed the beggar by the gate called Beautiful there in Jerusalem. It was Peter who said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak but of what we have seen and heard. It was Peter who said, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven by which men could be saved. And the last time we saw Peter, it was in Acts chapter 8 verse 20 when he said to Simon the sorcerer, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And since then, we have learned much about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, and we've learned much about the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, but now it's back to Peter. He is still going strong for Jesus. And the end of chapter 9 and chapters 10 through 12 are Peter's encore. There is a full orchestra ready to back him up. And so let's listen as he plays notes on the violin of God's grace that are so true for the glory of Christ that we can't help but to listen and to smile and to be inspired by this old fisherman who is still going strong for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in our text today, we'll see how Peter shows us that Jesus is Lord over disease. Verses 32 through 35. And then we'll see how Jesus is Lord over death in verses 36 through 43. Let's start with number one, Jesus is Lord over disease. And if you're taking notes this morning, your first blank there simply says the new place. The new place, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydduk. Peter was going in and out of the area. He was preaching the gospel from town to town. And speaking of Peter and John in Acts 8.25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so Peter was, he was busy. He was just doing the Lord's work. He was preaching from town to town, wherever he might be. And while back in Jerusalem, Peter did spend a little bit of time with Saul, who became Paul. I mentioned to you how Saul was in, and Damascus and then he went to Arabia, then he came back to Damascus, then he went to Jerusalem and he was there just for a few days before he went to Tarsus. but in Galatians 118 we are told that after three years Saul said, "I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter and he remained with him for 15 days. And now Peter was to be the primary apostle that God was going to appoint in order to reach the Jews. And Paul was going to be the primary apostle that God would use to reach the Gentiles. Now, Peter would still preach to Jews, and Paul would preach to Gentiles and Jews, and Peter to both Gentiles and Jews, but we see here that Peter is in a Gentile area, and we're going to see that again next week in chapter 10, as he's going to be witnessing to Cornelius, but here in verse 32, we see that Peter came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, this is a town that was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was formerly known by its Hebrew name, Lod. It was also located about 10 miles southeast of Joppa, where Peter will be headed next. Lydda was situated at the intersection of the trade route between Egypt and Damascus and the road from Jerusalem to Joppa. Julius Caesar gave the city of Lydda to the Jews, who ruled in it until the time of the Jewish revolt of 66 AD. Interestingly enough, during the Crusades, King Richard the Lionhearted visited the Holy Land, and he spent quite a bit of time in this village of Lydda. And there he built a church in honor of St. George. The ruins of that church still remain to this very day. In modern times, this village of Lydda is located just south of the international airport there in Israel in the city of Tel Aviv. Now, one may ask How there were already believers there in Lydda. We see there in verse 32, Peter arrives and he came to the saints, to the believers that are there. So how did believers already get there? Most believe that it's likely that Philip, the evangelist who had been preaching the gospel, had uh, witnessed Christ to some of these who became believers. And there were other disciples as well who had left Jerusalem during the time of Saul's fierce persecution. It's also worth noting that in Acts and the rest of the New Testament, for that matter, there are names that are given to refer to Christians, universal names, the name saints, the name brethren, the name disciples, the name believers, the name followers, to name a few. But the New Testament recognizes no special or sectarian or denominational names which divide God's people into two groups. In the Roman Catholic Church, however, you can only become a saint, because we're talking about the saints of Lydda. So I just want to remind you, in the Roman Catholic Church, you can't be a saint unless you've been dead for five years. And not only do you have to have been dead for five years, you have to be voted on in order to be counted worthy. In the Roman Catholic mindset, you must have been a faithful servant of God. You must have shown proof of a life of heroic virtue. And you must have had verified miracles attributed to other individuals who pray to you after you die and you answer their prayers miraculously, and it has to be verified. And if it's been verified, then only then can you go through the canonization when you would then be officially declared as a saint by the Pope. Well, I've got news for you this morning. The Bible says that you are a saint if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Sainthood is not something that you earn, but it's something that's given to you by God's grace. Sainthood is not something that people vote on, but it is a privilege that God bestows on all of his adopted children. Sainthood cannot be conferred on anyone by the Pope but it is given freely to every true believer who has been justified by faith. Now listen to how the believers are referred to as saints many times in the New Testament, not just here in Acts chapter 9, but in Romans 1, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. Or how about in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints or in Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. I believe you get the idea that all throughout the Bible, Christians of various areas are being addressed here as saints, and that's what we need to understand. I've talked to you a couple weeks ago about should your identity be more of I'm a great sinner or should your identity be more of I'm a great saint? And if you take that approach of I'm a great sinner, Be careful because if you're in Christ this morning, you're referred to more in the New Testament as a saint than as a sinner. And you need to be reminded of that this morning because you were chosen by God and you've been set apart and you've been called to a holy life that would represent him in all areas of your life. And you can only do that by repenting, by being regenerated, by being born again That God makes you a saint, and that's what he's referring to the believers in Lydda there. He's referring to them clearly as saints. Well, now that we've learned just a little bit about Lydda and the saints who lived there, let's look at our second blank that says the needy person. The needy person, verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, this man had been bedridden and paralyzed for eight years. Maybe he had a stroke, maybe he had something like polio, and maybe there was a freak accident. We don't know what happened to this man, but it is something that the medical community of that time was not able to cure. And no doubt, this was a very sad situation, as the ancient world has no way of giving equal access in public areas like the ADA requirements do today. And can you imagine eight years of being confined to your bed? No walking, no wheelchairs, No adequate transportation. All of his muscles had atrophied. He probably struggled with various bed sores. Who knows how he could handle the daily task of things like eating and bathing and going to the bathroom? I mean, this man had likely been a great burden to those that he lived with, not to mention the financial strain. But this man's physical need is about to be met. What an opportunity for God to show his mercy, his power, and his love for the downcast and the downtrodden. And so here we see the needy person, Aeneas, in verse 33. Verse 40, 34, your next blank says, the necessary power. The necessary power. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose so Peter speaks directly to the paralyzed man and he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. I love the fact that Peter called this man by name. That would have been a privilege. That would have been an honor to have Peter, the lead apostle, know his name. Aeneas' name may not have been used all that often since he was out of the flow of the typical social life. But Peter said, "Aeneas." In other words, Peter's like, "I've heard about you. I knew who you are, I know about your need, and I want to address you directly this morning in such an intimate, personal and loving way. He says, "Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you." Notice Peter did not say, "I heal you." Or, "If you make a large donation to my ministry, I'll pray that you be healed." or." Let me pray to one of the saints on your behalf that they would do a miracle. In the New Testament, healing was always validating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't a side issue. It was an opportunity for Jesus to show his power over demons, over disease, and over death. And oftentimes what we see in the book of Acts is someone finding the most difficult case and they would seek out that sick person. And they would heal them instantly beyond all shadow of doubt, permanently. There was no mass meeting, no hysteria. There was no healing of psychosomatic illnesses as though it were a real thing. There was no stage managed effects, no offerings, just a simple exercise of rare and temporary but awesome and convincing spiritual power. And then Peter told him after he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Notice he says, rise and make your bed. Now, some parents of teenagers today might read that verse and say, I'm not sure what the bigger miracle was, (laughs) the fact that he rose or the fact that he made his bed. But the making of his bed is significant in the sense of that he didn't need it anymore. He didn't need his bed anymore except to sleep in at night. This wasn't a slow healing that required surgery and recovery or medication or physical therapy. Those things are all good, but we don't see that here. He's like, hey, you can make your bed right now. There's no rehab center to go through. You're going to be instantly healed. This was a miraculous healing that had no need of rehab and therefore no need for him to go back to his bed only to sleep again at night. We can't help but notice Some similar terminology and style following after Jesus when Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, you might remember, he told him, Mark 2.11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. We also read in Luke 5.24 where Jesus said, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And so we see in these passages, and in many ways, Peter is following the same approach and the same wording that he had witnessed as a follower of Jesus. Jesus would often call people by name, Heal them, and in this case, take, tell them to take their bed and go home. And Peter is certainly, certainly following in a similar type of footsteps. We're, we're just reminded here that the power necessary, again, belongs to Jesus, and it doesn't belong to you or to me. It doesn't belong to Peter or to Paul. It certainly doesn't belong to any self-proclaimed faith healer of today. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is divine in all of his attributes, and Jesus is the great physician, Now, by the way, when you hear that term, great physician, we typically think about it as connected to Jesus' healings, right? We know he healed people over and over again. We pray for healing today. While we don't believe that that power might be vested in a person, certainly God could heal anybody at any time. And uh, as an elder team, we're happy to even come alongside those who are sick and to anoint them with oil and to pray for them, as James 5 talks about. So we believe in healing. I'm just specifying here that it's the healing that God does, the way he does it, when he does it. And we could certainly pray for it. But the idea of Jesus being the great physician is it necessarily connected to physical healing. There's nowhere in the Bible, actually, where the phrase great physician is given. But the reason that we often think about and refer to Jesus as the great physician is because of that passage that I've been reading for you. Turn to it with me, if you will. Mark chapter two. Mark two, again, where he had just healed the man, right, the the paralyzed man, and he had been in a discussion with them about forgiveness of sins and about healing the man. And and so uh, we read there, after that healing, we read in Mark chapter 2 verse 15 as he reclined at table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him and the scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners so the Pharisees are all upset, right? Jesus is at the house having a meal with all these sinners. Why is he associating with them? Verse 17, and then Jesus heard it. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, to those, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, Now, again, in the context of Mark 2, Jesus did just heal the paralytic, and he had asked the question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And we understand here that power is necessary to say, rise and walk, but even more power is necessary for Jesus to be able to say, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is trying to do in Mark 2 is say, what's more important to heal a person's body or to forgive their soul of their sin. And as he's having lunch after that healing with the tax collectors and they're all upset about it, that's when Jesus says, look, I didn't come to those who are righteous. I came to those who are sick. And he is the physician, right? The righteous, he's referring to the Pharisees, those who are righteous. They think they don't need Christ. They don't need forgiveness. They don't need the atonement because they're trying to justify themselves according to keeping the law. So those who are righteous have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are sick would be you and me. Those who recognize I'm a great sinner, but when I'm saved, I become a great saint. And he's saying there the great physician could potentially be referring even more to, again, the fact that Christ heals our soul more so than the fact that he heals our bodies. Just a side note there to think about. Let's now move on to verse 35 where it says the noted purpose. The noted purpose Again, we see this here in verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Again, the main purpose of Peter praying for Jesus to heal Aeneas was not just so that he could receive his physical healing, but so that his soul would be saved. Because when Aeneas rose and certainly began to walk, it would have been an astonishing miracle for all those in Lydda to see. And then Peter would have no doubt capitalized on that and he would have preached the gospel. That's what he had been doing before he got there, while he was there, and after this miracle. And we understand that the residents there were impacted by this because when the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, they turned to the Lord. And so we understand that being the residents of Lydda, which we've already talked about, and also of Sharon. Sharon was a fertile plain that was located about uh, right there adjacent to Lydda that was about 10 miles wide and 50 miles long. Lida was located on the southeastern edge of that plain. Sharon is mentioned a few times in a few important places. One time is in Isaiah 35, 1 through 2, where we read, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now, I believe that Isaiah 35, that talks about, again, just the beauty of this land of Israel being revived, where there'll be blossoming in the desert, there'll be beauty in the midst of difficulty. I believe that this is describing Sharon's agricultural fertility to be seen and recognized by ransomed Israel during the millennial kingdom and to acknowledge that this is all a gift from God. And when we read about Lydda and Sharon witnessing Christ's power in healing in this paralyzed man, I think it would be a connection to and a precursor of even greater things to come when Christ comes back to rescue his people and allow them to live in the land. Not only that, but Sharon is also mentioned in the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, Solomon chapter 2. Uh, the song of solomon chapter 2 verse 1 where the shulamite woman says i am a rose of sharon a lily of the valleys so again when you hear these words in the new testament you should think where else have i seen that what else might that be pointing to why does luke go to the effort to say hey not only the residents of Lydda, but also the residents of sharon because sharon brings a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God, the blessings of God, and the, the blessings of his people. And in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter two, verse one, this is the Shulamite woman as the lovely one, as the desire of Solomon. Solomon beholds her beauty and her uniqueness as being a delightful gift from the Lord. And so the real thing that we're seeing here in Verse 35 is, as the healing happened, the residents of Lydda were impacted. The residents of Sharon were impacted. That's a richness again to Sharon being mentioned. And then it says, at the end of verse 35, they turned to the Lord. That's the part we can't miss, right? They turned to the Lord. Again, it wasn't just a miracle. It was a miracle that pointed to the gospel. And as the gospel was preached and proclaimed, many people turn to Christ, they turn to the Lord. The word turn there means a change in direction. It means to have a change in belief or a change in course or conduct. And what we're talking about here, of course, is the doctrine of repentance. After witnessing the miracle and hearing the gospel, which Peter would have preached at that same time, these people became true believers. And to be a true believer, there must be God's sovereign work of regeneration. And to be a true believer, there must be God's work of repentance in the heart of his people. And to have new life, there must be a heart of faith. That turning in your life is what happens every time a person comes to saving faith. They turn. not just positionally something they say, it is positional, but it's not just word, uh, uh, you know, word affirmations what I'm saying. There's a change in them where their life becomes different. In fact, we see that same emphasis of turning in Acts 11 verse 21. Acts 11:21 21 says, in the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So if someone's believing and they're not turning, we should ask them more questions about what is the nature of their belief? But if they're believing, they should start to have works that demonstrate saving faith. Back to James, faith without works can't save you. If you just have faith, but you're not turning from and turning to, again, in 2 Corinthians 3.16, and when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So have, have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? Have you turned from your way of life to follow Jesus. Is he truly the great physician of your soul? Because this is the whole point again of the healing of Aeneas is not only would he have quality of life as being raised up from his bed, but that he would have new life in his heart to walk with the Lord and as an example, those that were around him also turned to Christ. So in verses 32 through 35, we've seen that Jesus is Lord over disease. Now we're going to look at verses 36 through 43 and look how Jesus is Lord over death. He's Lord over death. Your next blank says the deeds of Dorcas. The deeds of Dorcas. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So Joppa was about 10 miles north of Lydda, And there lived a disciple named Tabitha. That would have been her Aramaic name of pronunciation. But in Greek, it's translated as Dorcas. Uh, I'll never forget when I was in college, I served in a kitchen at a winter camp for a few days. And I was in the kitchen getting uh, pots and pans ready to cook the evening meal. There was a few people uh, serving in the kitchen. And there was this husband and wife. And as they were together as a team working, he kept calling her Dorcas. Dorcas. And I was sitting in there, and I was just kind of like, what did he say? And he's like, hey, Dorcas, where are the hot dog buns? And then it would be like, hey, Dorcas, where's the ketchup? And then he was like, hey, Dorcas. And I I actually didn't know that that name was in the Bible. So I thought, what is this guy doing? We are sitting here trying to serve the people of God. And he is back here in the kitchen calling his wife a dork. And so I was just about to confront him. Like I was going to go up to him and like, hey, brother, you can't do that. I I don't know if you guys need marriage counseling or what. You cannot be doing that. So I went up to him and I was like, why are you calling her Dorcas? And he said, because that's her name. And I'm like, oh. He said, you remember Tabitha in the Bible? And I'm like, no, but I'll go look and make sure that it's in there. (laughs) So Tabitha, again, her Aramaic name, the Greek name Dorcas, Okay, It means, it's actually a beautiful name, in the original language it means gazelle. So she was as graceful as a deer. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And sometimes we associate that phrase good works with something derogatory. Like we could say, hey, your good works won't save you. And while that may be a true statement, that's not what this passage is about. It's a beautiful thing. Good works are a good and right and healthy thing. The word good here means, uh, means uh, meeting a relatively high standard. It means something of great quality, something that's useful or beneficial. Uh, we could say Dorcas is a First Timothy 2 kind of woman. First right? Timothy 2 verses 9 and 10 says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls are costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works." So in other words, uh, she was a Titus 2, uh, 1 Timothy 2 kind of woman. Uh, Titus 2 is another passage that talks about women teaching uh, younger women how to be faithful uh, and uh, wives and with their, teaching their children. But this is what Dorcas was about. She was filled with good works. She was adorning herself with the gospel. She was busy loving God and serving others, not a busy body. Uh, she was serving the Lord like Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I'm just saying Dorcas is an example of this. Also being full of the acts of charity. The word charity means the exercise of benevolent goodwill, alms, or charitable giving. The connotation of the word definitely points toward giving to the poor. And as we see in verse 39... Dorcas was serving the widows of the area because when Peter shows up later, they're all holding up their tunics and other articles of clothing that she had made for them, and so she cared for widows. She served them. She was a selfless servant. Dorcas found her joy in serving others. Certainly, we could add here that Dorcas was a New Testament example as well of the Proverbs 31 woman who quote, extends her hands to the poor and stretches her hands to the needy. So again, what a fabulous example for us all to be encouraged by Dorcas here today. And then we learn from verses 37 through 39 about the death of Dorcas. The death of Dorcas, verse 37 through 39. I'll just read 37. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now again, we don't know what she died of, The way the text is written, it seems as if this happened rather suddenly. She became ill and died. And what happens next is extraordinary. Typically, when someone died in Jewish culture, they were buried on the same day. Their bodies would have been rubbed down with oil and spices to keep their decaying flesh from stinking until they could get them into the grave. But from this text, there does not appear to be any Pertinent burial preparations. There's not any oil that's mentioned that's been applied to her body, which would have been in preparation for burial. Instead, they washed her, that's a good thing, and they laid her in an upper room. But it almost seems as if they're anticipating that she may not be there for long. And if you look at verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So it seems to indicate here that the saints there in Joppa might be expecting a miracle. They are anticipating that Peter, who was in the vicinity, might come over and resurrect Dorcas from death. Remember, Lydia or Lydda was only about 10 miles from Joppa. That would be like a three, four hour walk where Peter was. And so by the time that the two men walked, to Joppa to gather Peter and walk back easily seven or eight hours could have passed. Remember I told you typically they would bury the dead person on the same day, but they were expecting something different. There seems to be a little bit of hope, a little bit of anticipation. Hey, Peter, we heard about the fact that he's healed Aeneas. We've heard about the fact that he's been in different areas and just when his shadow would walk by people, we read about earlier in Acts 5, that people would be healed. So let's go send for Peter. Maybe there would also be a wonderful miracle that would happen here. So they had no time to lose. Their faith was being strengthened and encouraged by the other miracles that they had witnessed. And in verse 39 tells us, so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took, Took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing their tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So we see Peter here, certainly a man in demand. He was also a man on a mission. He rose from Lydda and went to Joppa. And when he got there, all the widows were weeping. It was customary to have people weeping at your funeral, mourning out loud for those who had passed away. These women were also showing Peter, as I mentioned, the tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made for them. They were recipients of the kind acts and the charity of Dorcas. She, she could knit. She could sew. Dorcas could probably crochet, whatever that means. <laughs> she was a nice lady. She loved these ladies, and so they have all their clothes, and they've been touched by her generosity. It's almost as if they were saying, how could someone so nice and so kind and so giving and so others focus, how could she die? How could that be the end? Surely there is something you could do for her. If anyone deserved the miracle of resurrection, they would think it would certainly be Dorcas. I mean, the world could use a few more people with a good heart who are full of good works and acts of charity. It is the church's responsibility, by the way, to take care of widows. The early church took this so seriously that that's why we read in Acts chapter 6 that they appointed six deacons in order to serve the widows of their appropriate portions. They wanted to make sure, hey, we got to take care of these widows. We want to help take care of the needy. And the deacons were involved to fulfill that ministry formally, but so was Dorcas. Which is just a reminder, you don't have to have a position at the church or an office as an elder or a deacon to do something great for God. You don't have to be a man, you don't have to be ordained, you could be any boy, any girl, any woman, any man, any human being, right, who loves God and loves others to say, you know what, I'm just going to help, I see a need here, I'm going to help meet that need. I don't have to have to have some type of formal ministry. I just want to be a blessing to others. That's the sense that we get of the heart of Dorcas here. You just have to have a heart to bless others. And this was the heart of Dorcas. We read also in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 3, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. And then it says, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, honor widows who are truly widows. So again, another passage just reminds us we're to honor those who have needs. And in this culture, a widow would have great need. She wouldn't have a husband to provide for her, likely had no life insurance. Maybe it would be very difficult to find gainful employment. And so she would be potentially very downtrodden. And, and that culture would have been extremely difficult. And so Dorcas must have been a huge blessing. She must have been a great encouragement to these widows. Certainly, we're reminded of this again in James 1.27, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me just ask you here at this point of our text, how do you feel like we're doing that as a church? Do you feel like as a church we do a good job caring for our widows? caring for others that are in need? Do you feel like as an individual that you do a good job saying, you know what, I heard about this situation. I want to see if I can't meet that need. Now, again, you're, you're welcome to let us know. We, we welcome you. I'm just saying as a church, let's grow together. I, I feel like we're doing okay because we have small groups that try to serve those who are in need. I also know of situations that we've overlooked, and I always feel bad about that when I hear somebody say, oh, I went through this great trial and nobody was there for me. And I take that I take that as like that's my responsibility as the pastor of the church Certainly all of us as elders and deacons, but I'm just also appealing to all of us as Christians this morning to say, you know what? Let's look up to Dorcas. What a great example. Can we do a better job loving and caring for those around us? And so that's just a, an area for personal growth, I think, that we can excel still more. Would you, would you join me in that? We could excel still more in just loving those. And that's what Dorcas did. And then we see here, the next uh, blank says, the deliverance of of Dorcas. The deliverance of Dorcas, verses 40 through 41. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Again, what a beautiful miracle for a beautiful servant of the Lord. And just as Peter followed in the footsteps of Jesus in the way that he healed Aeneas, when he said, rise and make your bed, he follows Jesus in a similar way in raising Dorcas from the dead. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. You remember how Jesus raised Jairus' daughter? Mark chapter 5, verse 35 through 43 or through 42 says this While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, that would be Jairus's house, one of the Jewish rulers, someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter. So Peter was there, remember, watching Jesus, what he did in that situation, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Just to clarify, she was really dead. Jesus is just making the point it's a temporary thing because he's about to resurrect her. And death, in a sense for the Christian, is temporary because we go to be with Christ or into the eternal, uh, dismal place of hell, right? So he's just kind of alluding at that. He's not saying that she was actually asleep. She was dead. They laughed at him, verse 40, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, this is interesting, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, in both of these cases, the fact that Jesus healed Jairus' daughter that we just read from Mark, and here in Acts chapter nine, in both of these cases, we see that mourning people were put outside of the room. There were people that were mourning that were not allowed into the inner chamber. We also see that the words that Jesus used, talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you arise, are almost the exact same words that Peter used when he said, tapitha kumi, which means, Tabitha, I say to you, arise. In fact, there's only one letter difference between Talitha and Tabitha. Now, again, one means little girl and the other one was her name, but I'm just saying, it's so interesting to see how Peter, just following in those same footsteps. In both cases, Jesus and Peter took the woman by the hand and she got up. And in both cases, it was the power of God that raised the person from the dead for a dead person certainly can't raise themselves. And some people may think that Peter, who had healed many people by the power of God, should have just commanded Dorcas to be raised. We're back in Acts 9 now. I just wanted you to see those similarities. But some people might have just said, well, Peter should have just commanded her to be raised by the power of God. But Peter knew where the power came from. And that's why I love the emphasis here in the Acts 9 passage that Peter prayed. In fact, he knelt down and he prayed. Prayer is always essential to a successful ministry. Oh, how we need to ever be dependent on God. And Peter knew that. He came in and he didn't just say Talitha Kumi, right? He just said, I got to pray. I got to get on my knees. I got to pray for God to do this. Just like it was Jesus who healed Aeneas. He knew it was going to be Jesus who would raise Tabitha from the dead. And aren't we reminded about that from Jesus in John fifteen five when he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He that remains in me and I in him shall bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And there's no better way to be dependent on the Lord than to be in prayer. And we must be looking to Christ and abiding in Christ and bearing fruit in our obedience to Christ in all things. And Peter learned that God works through prayer and that God wants us to pray big things. Right? Ephesians 3 verse 20 says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And I just love that. It's just a reminder that we're to pray to him who's able to do far abundantly more than all we could ask or think. That's our God. We may not live in the New Testament where there were regular miracles, at least during this apostolic age. But we still live in a time when God moves through his providence he moves through power. He certainly saves souls from the grasp and from the pit of hell, right? He, he does incredible works. And I just think we need to be encouraged this morning as we're reading here that we serve a great and a powerful God. And Peter was a, a man who depended on the Lord and he spent time in prayer and I love the fact that Peter also learned that from Jesus, right? It was Jesus who also spent time in prayer. Peter had watched Jesus many times, like the time in Matthew 14, 23, that it says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Luke six twelve. 12, and these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, it says that he looked up to heaven and set a blessing over those five loaves and the two fish. And so when Jesus prayed, things happened. When Peter prayed, things happened. When you pray, what happens? <laughs> just a challenge for us, right? I mean, we know again, we're not miracle workers in and of ourselves, but it's just reminding us man, we gotta be pursuing the Lord in prayer. We need to have, uh, we need to have a more faithful, more disciplined, more joy-filled, more scripturally saturated, more faith, uh, fervor in our prayer life. And I just think as Americans today, we've just fallen away from that. And maybe these last couple of years with what we're facing, obviously in the world, we're just like, man, we gotta pray, people. We gotta pray for our nation. We gotta pray for our leaders. We gotta pray for our churches. We gotta pray for each other. We're up against something that has demonic influence. And yet we serve a God who answers prayer. And when Jesus prayed, he was fully God and fully man, but he still prayed all night. We're just fully man. So how much more should we be praying all night, right? Are your prayers aligned with God's will? Are your prayers aligned with God's word? What does your prayer life look like? I mean, maybe the reason you're not seeing God do more incredible things in your life is you're not asking him to. And yet he tells us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek And you will find, knock, and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and to him who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. What an incredible passage! Jesus is just like, Come and get it. Come and get it. I want to bless you in ways that you cannot imagine. And so, Peter here prays with faith, and he prays powerfully and humbly, depending on the Lord. And when he prayed for Dorcas, she was resurrected. And for those who loved her, their joy must have been inexpressible as he presented them there to the saints. And then we wrap up the passage here, verses 42 and 43, that says the direct result of Dorcas, the result of meaning of her, of her life, her death, her resurrection. We read it in verse 42 and 43, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And so we see here, again, God had even greater purpose than bringing Dorcas back to life. Yes, I think God loved Dorcas and and, and valued her life and ministry and chose to give her more days. So that's beautiful. But God also used this miracle to draw many to himself. Many believed in the Lord after they heard about the story of what happened to Dorcas. And God, again, he uses miracles as confirming signs that the gospel is true. And God also uses miracles to authenticate his messengers and their message of eternal life being found in Christ. And this miracle, like so many of the previous ones, led many people to believe in the Lord. And we read that over and over again. Listen to what happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came with power and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And then it says, They were praising God, having favor for all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, so many times, first the miracle, then the preaching of the gospel, then people start turning to Christ. Listen to what happened after Peter and John healed the lame beggar in Acts 4, verse 4, that many of them who had heard the word believed, and the number of them came to about 5,000. Acts chapter five, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. And then it says two verses later, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Or how about Acts chapter eight, verse six. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the things that he did. So again, miracles, in and of themselves don't save a person, but miracles do point to the miracle worker and the ultimate miracle worker is the Lord Jesus. And we shouldn't be spending all of our time seeking signs. We should be seeking the savior. We shouldn't be focused on our circumstances, but we should be focused on the changer of those circumstances. We shouldn't be limiting our hope to the desire for things to get better. We should be putting our hope in Christ who does all things well. It's just a reminder, our focus can't be on God heal me. That's okay to pray that. Well, I already told you, we'll pray it with you. But the focus has to be on God change me. God secure me. God encourage me. God give me joy to serve you in the pain and in the heartache. And that's what we see as the ultimate purpose of the miracle anyway, is that lives will be changed as people turn to him. Now, we do read in verse 43 a bridge verse between what's happening here in Joppa and what's going to happen in the next chapter as we read a little bit more about Cornelius. In verse 43 it says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Again, it's a bridge verse. We'll see Peter's ministry continue as he heads from Joppa to Caesarea to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Verse 43 also already hints at the changes that are taking place from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Our passage today shows the excellent preparation given to Peter For his ensuing experience that he's going to have with Cornelius. There were two outstanding miracles which confirmed Peter's ministry. God was truly with him in a special way. And Peter was also ministering in an area that was partly Gentile. And Peter, living in the home of Simon the Tanner, was significant because tanners were considered to be ceremonially unclean because they were in constant contact with the skins of dead animals. So again, we'll talk more about that next week. But this morning, my question is, are you certain that Jesus Christ is Lord over disease? Who's in here? And you would say this morning, I believe that Jesus is Lord over disease. Go ahead, put your hands up. I believe he's Lord over disease. You feeling a little charismatic? You like that? All right. all right, you're here this morning. Who believes that Jesus is Lord over death? You're here and you're like, man, I know he's Lord over death. Okay, all right, that's good. Then you're learning what you need to learn this morning. He's Lord over disease He's Lord over death. The question is, is he Lord over your life? Is he the Lord over your life this morning? Are you here this morning and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? You have turned from your sin. You've seen the miracle, of the resurrection from the scripture, and you've realized I need Christ. I cannot do it on my own. I have been making a mess of my life and my life is heart. And I am facing so many consequences for the bad choices I've made. I'm just here this morning to extend to you the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And to let you know that when we sing our last song, we'll have a couple of people available by that back door. We'd love to talk to you about it. And we'd love to say, if you believe that Jesus is Lord over disease and he's Lord over death, would you be willing to surrender to him this morning and and that he would be the Lord of your life? And that requires turning, like what we've read about. It, It requires turning from who you are a great sinner, into becoming a great saint. That's the work that God does. And he's still doing that work today. And it's far greater and far more important than being healed or even being resurrected physically is being changed on the inside out. And if Jesus is the Lord of your life this morning, then let me just ask you, are you still going strong for Jesus? You know, there's times of your life where you're in the limelight and there's times in the life nobody's looking. And for Peter, at least as far as Acts is concerned, he hasn't been anywhere to be found for a couple of chapters. Paul's stealing the show, and yet we come back to Peter, and he's still on fire. He's just preaching the gospel. God's using him to bring about miracle work uh, in, in his ministry, and he's pointing them all back to Jesus. And when, 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 if Jesus is the Lord of your life this morning, the question again is, are you still going strong for Jesus? And when life has you down to that last string on the violin, what song are you playing? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder of these truths that we've read about Peter going strong for Jesus, faithful to use his life as a testimony for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just thank you for how he reached out to Ananias and brought healing into his life through the power of Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection of Dorcas that could just encourage all of us that we would be the same kind of workers full of grace and full of acts of charity that we would be Christians who would turn. We would just turn as we read these passages this morning. There would just be areas in our life that we would say, you know what, I need to turn from that. And I need to turn back to Christ. I need to turn back to the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in me. And I need to just repent this morning. And I just need to seek Christ's face this morning. And I need to acknowledge that I need his help and his grace this morning. God, I pray if there would be someone here who would even not even be a true believer, Maybe there would be someone here today that would say, you know what, today's the day I need to make it right with the Lord. I need to turn from my sin. I need to turn to the God of grace. I need to know this Jesus personally, deep in my heart and soul. I I repent of my sin, and I believe in Jesus' perfect life and in his substitutionary death and in his resurrection. And I believe that Jesus is Lord over death. He's Lord over disease. I, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life Make that true in each one of us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.